Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. I'm James Conlon, welcoming you to join me as we embark on a journey that has tremendous significance for me and for the Los Angeles Opera. This podcast is part of a four-part presentation that accompanies Los Angeles Opera's rebroadcast of Richard Wagner's The Ring of the Nibelungen. Instead of the more conventional podcasts, we feature four recordings of live pre-performance talks as I gave them in 2010. They have all of the virtues and vices of live performance, just as any live opera itself would have. Interruptions, technical issues with musical excerpts, even the occasional mistake. Although there were sporadic performances of Ring operas performed by visiting companies, the 2009-2010 Ring was the first ever produced in Los Angeles. I hope the excitement which we all felt, public and performers alike, will bear up well under the microscope of the microphone and will be an enjoyable adjunct to your journey through this monumental work. Okay, so we left you off there. We just put her to sleep. She's going to wake up with the rest of us by the end of Act 3. All right, you have to wait for it. There's Brunhilde. This is a uh, third part now. We had a big love story. We had two love stories in the last one. We had the big cosmic drama of the ring, power, in the first one. Power is back. Some very important events are going to happen. Remember, the ring has been immobile now for... But let's just make an estimate, maybe 40 years, because you have to figure there's enough time between Rheingold and Valkyrie for Siegmund and Sieglinde to be born and come of age. And then there's got to be enough time between Valkyrie and Siegfried for Siegfried to come of age. So we're two generations. Maybe they started reproducing when they were 16 or so. So it's at least 32 years <laughs> that the ring has been in the same place. And where is that? It's in a forest. And the hoard of gold has been sitting there. And Fafner turned himself into a dragon with the Tarnhelm. And so the Tarnhelm is there. Okay, so it's all there in the forest. And what's been happening with it is absolutely nothing. Literally, Fafner has been sitting on it. Or more precisely, he's been sleeping on it because he wants his money. That makes him feel powerful. He probably should have done something with it and had a life. <laughs> All those 32 to 40 years, uh, he's going to wake up and find that it wasn't worth it. The love story is going to continue, and it's a new love now because it's not Brunhilde with her father, and unfortunately, Sieglind and Siegmund are both dead, but their son, Siegfried, is going to continue on the next step in the evolution of human love. That's going to happen. Of all of the operas, this is the one that resembles the most a fairy tale. There's a lot of fairy tale elements in there. There's the dark forest, there's a gnome or a dwarf, that's Mima, and of course he's ugly and he does all sorts of things like make witches brew. We've got a young hero who's very handsome and very strong. We have a dragon in the second act. We have a forest bird. We have magic because Siegfried is going to be able to lick the blood of the dead dragon and by so he's going to be able to understand what the bird is saying to him. The bird's going to give him instructions. And then, very, very important, there's going to be a magic fire, and the hero is going to walk through the magic fire, and he's going to find Sleeping Beauty at the top of the mountain. He's going to kiss her, and she's going to wake up, and they're going to be married and live happily ever after. This is also probably the happiest opera, in a way. 
You remember we made a simile with a four-movement symphony, the Rheingold being the first movement expository, the second movement being Die Walküre, all about love. And this is the scherzo, the third movement. Now, what is a scherzo? It's the third movement, generally, of any symphony from Beethoven onward. Usually the third movement in the Haydn, Mozart, in that era was a slow dance that came from the minuet, was the minuet and a variation on the minuet. And that comes from the age of dance suites of Bach, and it comes from the age of courts and kings. Now, gradually, since the French Revolution, that is being pushed out a little bit, and it's becoming more and more about ordinary people or the bourgeoisie. That's why the waltz is going to come and replace all of the court dances. This is the scherzo, which means joke in Italian. That was created by Beethoven. Beethoven sped up the minuet, and it gave it a tremendous energy. Wagner wanted to accomplish making a new art form that was to go back from the Greeks and was to put together again what he felt had been fragmented. Theater, religious festival, poetry, singing. Now, he felt it was perfect in Greece, had had been fragmented over the course of 2,000 years, and he was going to put it together again to create a form for the future. His heroes, more proximate, where Beethoven, he wanted to write music on the level of Beethoven, and he wanted to write drama on the level of Shakespeare. Therefore, the influence of Beethoven in this work is particularly important, and you're going to feel in the first act this enormous electrical energy that we associate with Beethoven's music and with Beethoven's symphonies in particular. So again, Rheingold was your ex exposition. It was the most formal of the operas. It was all about power. You have the lyrical slow movement, Valkyrie, which is about love, and that's similar to a symphony. And now you've got your scherzo. This is the one. Now, it's not a joke, the whole thing, but it has more comedy and funny moments than all of the other operas. And by the way, it is not true that Wagner is never funny. You know, now it may not be what you find funny, but a sense of humor, but in fact it is. And there's a lot of that in Secret. And of all the operas, this is the one that really ends up with And They Lived Happily After, with an exultation of the discovery of love. And had the ring ended there, it would be a very, very different thing. Rheingold ended in a blaze of glory about power as the gods go to Valhalla, and we feel their exultation. Now, Valkyrie ended up in a very touching, one of the most moving scenes of the farewell of a father to his daughter, melancholy, sad, beautiful, touching, deeply emotional. Okay, now we're back to a jubilation, happy ending again. This is not the happy ending of power, what that was Rheingold, this is the happy ending of love. And this is the new love, because this is not the gods, this is not the apples that make you look young forever, this is not Wotan going down to earth to mate with everybody he can get his hands on and having children everywhere. This is the new humanity. This is a pure human, Siegfried. And this is a pure human, Brunhilde, now in her human form because she was deprived of her right to be a god when Wotan punished her and put her on the mountain. And like all baptisms and like spiritual transformations, she has had to sleep and having reawoken from this sleep. You know, this is a classic mythical structure that the hero is born or you are reborn or we are reborn after some dramatic event you faint or you die and you resurrect or something some kind of deep sleep and you wake she's going to waken up now and she's going to discover eroticism with Siegfried and he who hasn't a clue about anything he's only seen bears and Mima uh, and he's seen little birds and he's seen that there's a man and a woman but that's all he knows and you're going to see him he's going to ask a lot of questions about that and the funniest line which is not meant to be funny and I know you're all going to laugh so I'm going to let you laugh laugh anyway, right now, twice, he gets up there and when he first sees Brunhilde, he says, das ist kein Mann, that is not a man. Right? 
So he's going to discover woman from the beginning, and by the 20, 30, 40 minutes later, he's going to be ready for full-fledged eroticism, too. It's a little overdue, and he's going to get it all at once, all right? So we end up, once again, with a jubilation about love. The first act is structured like a symphony, and it's, this really is Beethoven. It moves on at an incredible clip. It has three parts. It has three characters. There is a riddle context that has three questions. So the number three is very important. It's also the third opera of the ring. We're in Mima's hut. Mima is, you will remember, the brother of Albrecht. He is a dwarf. He's the great goldsmith. He was the one who was able to make the Tarnhelm. Albrecht enslaved him along with the other Nibelungs, and he had a perfectly miserable short entrance in Rheingold and then disappeared again. Well, how did he get there? Why is he important now? Is that when Sieglinde was dying in the woods, Mima was watching, and he took the baby, and he took the broken sword. Notung, remember it's me, needy, remember that. It's a broken sword. He takes the parts with him, and he decides he's going to bring up this little boy to be a big hero, and then he's going to indoctrinate his child, same way we all thought we were going to indoctrinate our children. And he's going to indoctrinate him to go out in the woods, kill the dragon, get the ring, and give it to Mime. So that's his whole purpose, and that's what he's been doing for 16 to 20 years now. The sword is there, and the big drama, his drama, and the drama of the first act is... How am I going to get this sword? Because it's in, still in two pieces after all of those years. Who's going to be strong enough? He's the greatest goldsmith in the world, and he doesn't have the strength to do it because this sword, of course, is created by Wotan. Remember, Wotan put it in the tree in Valkyrie, so it's a god-made sword. It has supernatural strength. Now, this young hero, this quasi-Hercules, Siegfried, is going to weld the sword, and then he's going to have it, and he's going to use it. And the whole point is that this is a human being making a sword, and this is Beethoven, and this is Wagner. This is the new humanity. We don't need gods anymore. He's going to weld his own sword. That's a phallic symbol, of course, Freudian. It's his manhood. Mima dominates the entire act. He is there from the beginning to the end. It is split up into a scene between Mima and Siegfried, a scene between Mima and Wotan, who is now no longer... He is God, theoretically, but his power has already been so curtailed that he now resigned to lack of power and resigned to the prophecies of Erda. He knows that the world will come to an end eventually and he will go with it. He is wandering around and therefore he is called the Wanderer, the Wanderer. He doesn't interfere any longer, but he wants to see what's going on. He wants to be down there where the action is. So he will come in for the middle section and then he will go out and Siegfried will come back. So you have Mima Siegfried, Mima Siegfried on the outside. You have Mima Wotan on the inside. That structure is important because that too is like the scherzo or the minuet in trio of a symphony where you have a first part, you have a second part, and then you have a repetition of the first part. We call it in theory ABA, a section or a structure, a secondary structure, and a return to the first structure. So that's how the first act is organized. And the opera started again, just like Rheingold. It sneaks in on you, and you hear these this two-note motive repeated three times, and that is brooding. Who is brooding? Mima. He's been brooding for many, many years, 40 years, okay? And this, these two notes are derived from the ring motive. You'll remember the ring motive, that very circular moment. This is now a derivation, and by Siegfried Wagner is is using many derivatives of the original motives as well as the original motives. So you get the picture, dark and dank, 
Okay, we're in the forest. Any good fairy tale should be in the forest at some point. Near that deep tuba. This is the hoard. That's the gold. It doesn't go anywhere. It sits there. And of course, who's sitting on that hoard is Fafnir the giant turned into a dragon. So you have a sense of all of that. This is tone painting. You have a sense of all of that before the opera gets going. And here we go now with the Nibelung. You're about to hear that. You remember that from Rheingold, okay? Obsessive, repetitious. It's the same old thing. This man is a slave, as all the Nibelungen are, not only literally but figuratively, to power and its acquisition. Over and over again. Remember, that was originally a Rhine Maiden theme when they praised the Rhine Gold. It has been distorted now, put in the minor key. And here's Woe. You remember Woe? And there are many themes that come out of that. So you get this dark picture of the inner soul of Mima and the whole tragedy of the entire lot who have sought power and have renounced love in their different ways. And this is what's left. Terror, horror. You see it builds up with the woe and it's going to build up again. The whole picture is genius, the whole picture. Two minutes, you've got the whole picture of the environment. Big explosive chord has to do with it. The power of domination, which is based on the woe motive. The ring motive, the circular ring motive. Faster, twice as fast, the ring motive. Coiled, like those nice little buttons you're wearing. Develops. Brooding. And familiar and important mode, the sword. Now, the sword is in two pieces, it has been for 20 years. And it starts up again and builds itself up into another climax until we hear Mima. Zwangvolle Plage, Mühe ohne Zweck, effort without results. He's trying to build this sword and he cannot. It's beyond his abilities. Now, Mima is a complainer. And he is sung, he's sung by what's called, what is often termed as a character tenor. That means that um, he doesn't get up there and sing bel canto like a Bellini or Donitz at the opera. It's all about text, it's all about character, and the voice is almost not meant to be beautiful. It's supposed to incorporate the character and the ugliness of the character. And so it is. He's complaining, but as in all negative characters, they have something positive or something that wins our sympathy despite that all. Anybody who's had a teenager at home can sort of... Uh, understand Mima. He's had a hard life. He does, he works, he cooks, he cleans, he does all those things, and he's not grateful, you see. So that's what Mima is complaining about. Here's his brooding theme. 
here's the dragon, Fafner. Right? He's thinking about Fafner. While he complains, he's thinking, Fafner. He's trying to get, he wants to get that gold. Now, Siegfried is about to arrive. Now, Siegfried is a hero, right? Okay. He's a hero. He was, he is going to take on, hopefully, the role that his father, Siegmund, was to have fulfilled, and then his life was cut short. Remember that Wotan, after Rheingold, decided to go back down to the earth and create some children and create a young hero, a tenor, who was meant to go and get back the ring and to give it to him. But like all other plans, it doesn't work out. Now at least he's got a grandson. Siegfried is his grandson, remember that. And uh, he's, Siegfried is going to, supposed to be a hero and to, to accomplish the same. Wotan hasn't spoken to Siegfried. Siegfried doesn't know him. And Mima has. And Mima's acting as a surrogate father now. So he wants the ring. So he's actually bringing up Siegfried to do exactly what Wotan wanted his own son, Siegmund, to do. And what he would still, maybe, if he weren't older and wiser now, he would still want Siegfried to do for him. Siegfried, however, is not a hero in the sense that he has a great plan for humanity or he's, he goes out on a great mission. He's spiritually enlightened and he's going to enlighten humanity. He's more brawn than brains. He's big, and he's, he is Herculean. He is heroic in the sense that he has great strength. And one of his strengths is that he does not have fear. And that is a great weapon, and that is his weapon. Now, he wants to learn about fear because he's told there's something called fear, and he wants to know what that is. But he's not going to learn it. He's going to try in Act 1 to know what it is. Act 2 is going to know what it is. Act 3, he finally learns fear when he meets Brunhilde. And that fear psychologically is vulnerability. He realized that he has a heart too. And when you open yourself up to love and vulnerability, you also open yourself up to certain fears. You open yourself up to joys, but you also open yourself to fears. So here he is, full of his energy. Here he comes. You will recognize that is the theme of his horn. See, in an instant, the second scene of this has a totally different character. One was dark and brooding, and now it's light, bright, and energetic. There he goes. Destroys Mima's efforts at the sword with a whack. Fast, energetic, Beethoven, scherzo. It's called youth, youthful, youthful strength. Those two themes are going to be uh, related to Siegfried. Uh, you can hear the youthful, undirected adolescent energy. It's going off in all directions. It's all about the energy more than the goal. And it goes around and around in circles like a dog chasing its own tail. It goes all over the place because it's not directed. Now, it'll get directed later on. Okay. This is Mima complaining about Siegfried. Now you remember ve? The first two notes is based on the welfare, and this is veis mia. This is what a child I have, never behaves. I hope you have a child like yourself. All of that stuff. That's a derivative of the original womb movement in an almost comic manner. 
now, for the first time, it turns a little sentimental. Siegfried wants to know about who was my mother, who was my father, what's my story. I've looked at little, I've looked at birds and the children of the birds look like their parents. I've looked at myself in the pond and seen my reflection. Mima, I don't look like you. You are, he's implying, ugly and awful and I'm handsome and good looking. You can't be my father. Who is my father? Now, who is my father is a basic construct of many Wagner operas. Parseval asks about his father and his mother more specifically, but that father, that mystery about origins is always important. So Siegfried now, all of a sudden, turns a little more serious, and that's where you're going to get the story again of what's happened in the past, okay? You're going to hear motives from the past. Lots of talk, lots of expressions. Mima tells him a lot of the story. You know it because you just saw Valkyrie. Okay. Siegfried had enough of that. He goes bursting out in energy. Again, energy. Who knows where he's going? Out into the forest. And who walks in but Wotan? Now, this is Siegfried bursting out, leaving, full of energy. Third ener energetic theme. Remember this. Ram, da, da, da. It's going to come back in a more heroic manner in Goethe Demerung. And here comes Wotan. Now listen to this slow, majestic chorale. There he is, Wotan. You hear the majesty of how he's... This is a new motive. It's an important one. It's called the Wanderer motive. Now, they're basically going to play a game, or Wotan's going to play a game, a riddle. Three questions, three answers, okay? Mima, you get to ask me three questions, and if I can't answer them, you can have my head. Mima, unclever, trying to be clever, asks questions to which he knows the answers, and so learns nothing. But we learn a lot because it's all about things that need to be filled in yet again, back information. Then, of course, Wotan wins, and so Wotan says, okay, now I get to ask three questions. Now, the three questions that Mima asked are, who's, who's up in the sky? You know, tell me about the three races. Remember that there are basically three social levels, as it were. In, you have the gods on Valhalla, they're up there, the giants on the earth, and you have the Nibelungen race, the dwarfs underneath. So that Wotan is really easy, it's simple. Well, Wotan asks questions, and in the course of those questions, you're going to hear a lot of motives that you know. Rooting. He's going to ask him that the giants, you remember your giants? You can tell him about the giants. Remember, please keep remembering the serpent motive. There it is. Serpent. Remember, it's always on the tubas. These are the Wagner tubas, the instruments that he created for the ring. Valhalla. Majestic. Wotan. The last question, the most important, is who's going to build this sword? Mima panics, because he doesn't know. He hopes it's Siegfried, but he doesn't want to tell that to Wotan. Wotan leaves in contempt, and of course, Siegfried comes back. Siegfried's job now is to build the sword. 
here he goes. And you see it's heavy lifting. Only a hero can do it. Here's no tung, no tung. That falling octave, that is the name of the sword. Remember, the sword had a motive, but when it got a name, it has a derivative of that motive. You'll remember, ba bom ba 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 That's the sword. Now he takes the outside of that motive, bom ba and he takes the outer two notes, and he turns it into the name of the sword, which is notung, which you remember, note means need. Okay, now he sings, and he works. He sings and he works. There he goes. He sings, you hear, you hear the anvil. You can feel his big muscles in the string instruments. He bangs away, and this is the equivalent of whistle while you work. This is, you know. You know bangs away, singing happy as a lark. And what is he doing? He is constructing his passage, rite of passage into adulthood, okay? When he's got that sword, he's almost fully a man, and then he's going to become fully, fully a man, and a human being later on when he's going to meet Brunhilde, and he's going to make love to Brunhilde. So this is another rite of passage, and it's going to wind up, Mima gets excited, because he thinks that sword is going to be built and he thinks that his surrogate son is going to go out and kill Fafner and he's going to give him the ring. So you have excitement here. Now you remember you had extraordinary excitement at the end of Act One of Valkyrie and it was erotic excitement. It was a building up of this attraction and its consummation. Well, now you're going to have something that's quasi-erotic. It is only on a psychological level. Mima, who has no love, but his love is power. He feels power. He's getting power. He's getting close. Siegfried is constructing his own masculinity by banging on this sword, by making this sword, and it has the same kind of climactic power as an erotic encounter, but it's just two men, one who's innocent and doesn't know yet, and the other who is in love, not with a woman, and not with the erotic, but he's in love with power. And so he builds up an excitement. Finally, the sword is made, or is getting made. Happy Mima. Now it's happy, it's like a dance. He's so excited. Bangs away, no tung, no tung. And as it builds up, higher. Until it's welded. There's the sword motive, original sword motive. Triumph, this is, the sword is about to be complete. They used to have an anvil, a real anvil, and a real, uh, I forget what you call them, what you put on the, and it used to be operated by a pedal. At the right moment, the tenor would step on the pedal and it would break. I once saw it break about 20 minutes too early and it was fantastic, it was down there. The audience laughed until the end of the act, it was great. Here we go. So schneidet Siegfried's Schwert. And you hear the Siegfried, the Siegfrieds, he's happy. The sword is ready. He goes out into the world. He's ready. He's got his weapon. Act one. Remember Valkyrie. And keep that in mind. So cut Siegfried's sword.
There he goes, right? So you go running out to get your lunches. You've got 45 minutes in which to do it. You've plenty of time. Having said that, listen carefully. Act two. dark, deep forest. Nothing like the medieval German forest. Oh. The dragon. He's been sleeping there. It's dark and dank, okay? And we're going to meet some of our favorite dark and dank characters. Alberich is back. We haven't seen him since the end, since his curse in Rheingold, and he too, of course, is a is following events. After 40 years, he wants that ring. He is the brother of Mima, but they don't like each other anymore. And he's out there, and he is going to bump into his old friend, Wotan, now the Wanderer. Now they last confronted each other in Rheingold, and they're going to have a. Uh, uh, have a meeting and a discussion. From Wotan's point of view, it's a lot more jocular than it was back in Rheingold. Alberich, no. And they're going to go wake up Fafner together and say, Fafner, how's it going there? You've been asleep. Fafner is completely uninterested in anything. So that's the essence of this dark, dark scene. Here we are. We're going to. Just to remind you of the curse. Motive of Alberich's curse. The ring is cursed. Why? Because power brings with it uh, its price. And for ultimate power, you pay the ultimate price. Here's Alberich with Wotan. And Alberich, as usual, is full of wrath and rage. They go to wake up Fafner. says the dragon. He's been sitting on his gold, lying on it for years. He's lazy, heavy. Ich lieg, I am lying. Und besitzt, and I own property. Lass mich schlafen. Let me sleep. Well, out they go. And then Siegfried comes in. You hear his song from the first act where he made the sword. So we've had all the protagonists in this little corner of the forest. We've had Wotan and Alberic, Fafner's been sleeping, and here comes Siegfried and Mima. Because obviously what's going to happen now, somehow or other, Siegfried and the dragon are going to meet each other. Now before they do, Siegfried takes a little rest under a linden tree. Now you get nature. This is the this is the the forest. Instead of we heard the Rhine in in the Rheingold, now we're getting the forest. Falling asleep? Good. So did Siegfried under the tree. And Wagner stopped writing Siegfried for 12 years. 
And he, he wrote and he said, I've just left my Siegfried sleeping under, sleeping under the tree. Who knows when I'll wake him up. He um, took a little break from the ring, partially because he sort of came to a halt, not knowing quite what he wanted to do yet. And then something else was bothering him. And that something else was Tristan and Isolde. So he wrote Tristan and Isolde. And then something else was bothering him, and that is he always wanted to write that comedy. And so he wrote, wrote Die Meistersinger. And when he was all finished with that, some fat cleared the air, and he was ready to go back to Siegfried. Unbelievable, a decade passed before Wagner continued. And when he comes back, he is a new Wagner. And one can't hear most of that at the end of the act in second act of Siegfried. We're gonna meet a few other characters. Here is the forest, they're called Forest Murmurs, that's the title. You hear the bird. This is the, bird, the Waldvogel, that's the forest bird. Siegfried is going to build his horn, a comic moment. Even Siegfried has to learn how to start and play scales. He's working on his whittling away at this. He's not doing very well. right somehow miraculously and as soon as he does he's going to use it and of course he's going to wake up the dragon they're going to have their confrontation and of course like saint george he will slay the dragon with his wonderful new sword nutung and when he does that they have quite a tussle the dragon motives on the bottom and then with each charge there's Siegfried. It's pretty easy to identify who's who by the music. The dragon. And when it's all over, Fafner, of course, becomes philosophic in the last three minutes of his life, talks with Siegfried. Siegfried, of course, wants to get some answers, but it's also Fafter wants an answer. Who is it that has slain me? And he says, Siegfried, and he says, oh, Siegfried. And dies. giant is dead. Here come Mima and Alric, the, the two brother dwarfs. They're back, scampering around, slithering. Confrontation between the two of them. They both want the ring. They're arguing about what? Who's going to get that ring? It's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Of course, here they are arguing. And of course, Siegfried emerges. He's got the gold. He'll get the ring. He'll have the Tarnhelm. He won't understand any of it, but he'll have it all. And he's certainly not about to give it to Mima or Albrecht. Mima, of course, uh, gets into the whole thing again. And now what's going to happen is because Siegfried has licked the blood of the dragon now, he will know how to understand the forest bird who will sing and basically give him a hint. Said, you know, Mima wants to kill you. He's going to bring you some nice soup or tea or something like that, and then he's going to get the ring. Don't do that. So Mima starts to 
charm. Siegfried says, oh, Siegfried, you must be so tired from your busy day at work killing dragons. Let me just prepare this nice little thing for you. She's very charming. But Siegfried is, of course, being advised by the bird. And we, we are able to hear Mima's thoughts just as Siegfried is. And Mima, right up to the last second, is doing his best. Was it? Mima's been dispatched. No big uh, eulogy, no funeral march, no nothing. One hacking away at his little neck by this great sword, and Mima is out. Did you hear the laughing in the background? That was Alberich. Alberich is delighted. My brother's dead. I can get the gold for myself. So he thought, he's only got one obstacle now. He's got to get to Siegfried. Of course, none of that is going to happen. And there's the brooding theme. Mima is done. So, Fafner's corpse has to be dragged away, the dragon. Siegfried has now something very important to do. He wants to still discover what is the meaning of fear. And the little bird says, go up in the mountain. There's a beautiful lady up there. You'll learn fear. And so, he's happy again. He's got a new mission. He goes scampering off like a squirrel. And here he goes. The trumpet is blaring out the bird theme. Another bird theme on the trumpet. Energy, 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 life-affirming. Uh-uh. Something bad's happening. Act three. Now we're in the cosmic drama, and this is the Wagner of post-Tristan and Postmeistersing. New harmonic language, expanded orchestra, expanded counterpoints, and we're back in the cosmic drama because Wotan is going to see Erda because he is, of course, deeply troubled and feel the end is coming. And so we'll hear all of that magnificent confrontation between Erda and Wotan. You'll hear all of Wotan's music, the spear. You hear both Erda and coming down, the Twilight of the Gods. You hear the Wanderer Corral in the brass, all of this put together in the most extraordinary canvas. The first 45 seconds of the third act puts you back into this cosmic drama and the end of time and the apocalypse. And so we have a few things to get through though before that. Erda has been sleeping. There she is. Erda has nothing to say, but yes, the end is coming. 
yes, I'm going back to sleep, and yes, the end is coming. And then Wotan meets the young Siegfried, who's on his way up the mountain. So he engages him in conversation. One is the ex-ruler of the world, and the other is a very naive young man. Wotan, jocular, music that straight out of Meistersinger, amazingly human and banal in a way. As the going gets rough, he, Siegfried, is going to confront Wotan. Wotan said, I will bar your way. And of course, Siegfried will use his sword to break his grandfather's spear, and that is the end of Wotan's power. And he will walk away crushed and broken and ready for the end. Siegfried then... There he is. His horn call as he is walking up the mountain. And what's ringing the top of the mountain? The fire. That fire has been blazing away since the end of Valkyra. And that means not just since last Sunday night, it means 20 years. Huh? Nobody's been up there. That's Siegfried's theme. Siegfried the hero, and here's Siegfried. Eventually, when he gets up there, he will see her. He will be deeply impressed by the landscape. We'll see a lot of the old motives coming back. He will, he will see Brynhilde for the first time. Das ist kein Mann. Das ist kein Mann. That's your cue to laugh. That is his discovery of woman. Wagner, I don't believe, meant it to be funny, but most modern audiences find it funny. She will awaken to the most extraordinary music. There it is. Heil dir Sonne. I greet you, or greetings to you, Ave to the sun. Because why? She has just awakened. She has opened her eyes for the first time in a generation. And this magnificent music will also serve as the beginning of the Twilight of the Gods of Goethe Demerung and will be, will be recast at the moment of Siegfried's death right before the funeral march in Goethe Demerung. It is one of the most magnificent, powerful passages in the work. Now eventually, they'll get talking. And this love duet, if I had to identify the three great love duets, is the first act of Valkyra, which you heard several days ago, the second act of Tristan, which unfortunately for Tristan and Isolde never reaches its proper climax, but this one will. Love motive. Jubilation, the enchantment of love. Those of you who know Siegfried Idil in from the concert hall, you all know that. That's the pure love of Brunhilde. More love. More jubilation, more love. And for one of those rare times, they sing together. Remember, Wagner doesn't like people singing at the same time, but they are joined now in laughter. Lachendes Tod. It's laughing death. It's not, it's not deathly, it's laughter. Laughter, joy, exultation. And here they go, climbing, 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 climbing. That's the great love theme. 
that, of course, is Birgit Nielsen, the goddess of my youth. Worth waiting for some four hours. Great climaxes take great preparation, and this one does as well. And there it is. Have a great afternoon and a great evening. This podcast was co-produced by Rebecca Stewart. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. <laughs> <laughs>